choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? In that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode 221 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 11, Lunar Landing, Part 3. We ended the previous episode with the Eagle 7,500 feet above the moon. The computer had just initiated the approach phase program P-64 and the lunar module pitch had decreased rapidly from about 55 degrees to 45 degrees. The spacecraft will continue to rotate upright and will be at a pitch of about 20 degrees when Armstrong takes manual control to overfly West Crater. Eagle, you're looking great. Coming up nine minutes. We're now in the approach phase. Everything looking good. Altitude 5,200 feet. Armstrong checked the altitude and speed, 5,000 feet up, 100 feet per second, just as expected. For a moment, Neil took control of the lunar module, pulsed the maneuvering thrusters, then gave the ship back to the computer, satisfied that the Eagle would respond when it was time for him to take over. Now his eyes went back to the gauges, 3,000 feet up, descending at 70 feet per second, about 48 miles per hour. Eagle was right on the planned trajectory. In mission control, Krant's team seemed to gain strength as the problems mount. Steve Bales came on the loop and said, The landing radar has fixed everything. The lunar module velocity is beautiful. Carlton, the lunar module control, has been watching the fuel gauge system and he selects the fuel quantity measuring probe that will be used for giving the crew and control team voice callouts on seconds of fuel remaining. The voice loop calls are now back to their expected traffic level, and a few minutes after checking with Bales that the landing radar had updated the computers, Krantz started to close out his final mission rules for landing. All of the mission rule requirements had been met. It was time to make the final landing go, no-go decision. Mission Control was about to hand over the control for the final phase of the landing to Armstrong and Aldrin. Soon, they would only be spectators. Krantz started around the loop for the landing go, no-go. Okay, all flight controllers, go, no-go for landing. Retro. Go. Fido. Go. Guidance. Go. Control. Go. Telcom. Go. GNC. Go. Ecom. Go. Surgeon. Go. Capcom, we're go for landing. Eagle Houston, you're a go for landing, over. There is a brief pause, then Aldrin responds. Roger, understand, go for landing. And then, another alarm. Roger, understand, go for landing, 3,000 feet. Alarm. 1201, 
That was Krantz, Bales, and Putty on the mission control loop. Passing 1,400 feet, yet another 1202 alarm. Duke advised the crew that mission control copied. 1,400 feet, still looking very good. Roger, 1202, we copy it. Inside Eagle, it was time for Armstrong to watch for his landmarks and look for a good place to sit down. He gazed past the grid on his window and said to Aldrin, Give me an LPD. An LPD is a landing point designator. During landing, Pitchover gave the commanders their first look at the landing site. Then they could retarget the lunar module using the landing point designator. If they twitched the hand controller forward, the computer would move its target downrange by a small increment, and similarly to the right, left, or uprange. Aldrin queried the computer and told Armstrong, 47 degrees. 47, Armstrong repeated. He sighted along the window grid past the 47 degree mark. He could see the target still more than a mile in distance, but advancing rapidly. It looked promising. That's not a bad looking area, he said blandly. Suddenly, the alarm was back. Aldrin had no sooner cleared the alarm then it sounded again. Again, Armstrong's attention was diverted by the threat of an abort, while Eagle flew onward. Now, 1,300 feet above the moon's surface, Eagle began its final descent. Flames gushed downward as the craft slowed. Neil had flown the mission right along the razor's edge. He and Buzz functioned as one. Neil punched proceed into his keyboard. The computer would handle the immediate descent task. Buzz would back up both man and electronic brain so Neil could adapt to flying in a vacuum. A momentary smile crossed his face. Now let's see if those 61 lunar training vehicle flights were worth it. Neil looked through his triangular window and studied the desolate, crater-packed surface before him. He had made many simulated runs, poured over dozens of photographs taken by Apollo 10, marking the way landmark by landmark, down to the Sea of Tranquility. He knew their intended landing site as well as he did familiar airfields back home, and he immediately noticed they weren't where they were supposed to be. Eagle had overshot by four miles. A slight navigational error and a faster-than-intended descent speed accounted for their lunar module missing its planned touchdown spot. Neil studied the rugged surface rising toward him, and Buzz noted a yawning crater wider than a football field. Eagle was running out of fuel, and the computer was blindly taking them there down into the middle of a boulder field with boulders larger than a Volkswagen. Scientifically, it would be great to land next to and explore a crater gouged into lunar soil, but Neil quickly ascertained the slope around it was too steep. If Eagle landed on a tilt, they could never launch back into orbit. 
With not a second to waste, Neil realized he was on his own and took control. This was where experience and training came into play, and he looked beyond the crater. Landing Eagle was a matter of piloting skills he had been honing. Against the wishes of Director of Flight Operations Chris Kraft, Neil had spent more time in the Lunar Landing Training Vehicle than any other astronaut, and now it was paying off. He needed to bring Eagle into a smooth surface, not by hovering and dropping, but by flying, by scooting across the lunar landscape as he had trained. He gripped Eagle's maneuvering handle and translator in his gloved fist. With a touch honed by years of flying the smallest and the largest, the slowest and the fastest, Neil knew the thin edge well, and he had to fly as he had never flown before. Knowledge, experience, touch. The skill of flying the Gemini 8 emergency from orbit, bringing the X-15 rocket plane in from its Pasadena flyover, ejecting from his crippled jet fighter over Korea, and ejecting from the lunar landing trainer itself seconds before crashing. All of it, everything, came to this one moment. Neil's fingers alternately tightened and eased on the maneuvering handle and translator as they sailed downward at 20 feet per second. He nudged the power, slowing to 9 feet per second. He attuned his senses to the rocking motions and the skids, Sixteen small-attitude thruster rockets kept Eagle aligned throughout its descent. A level touchdown was their ticket to safety, survival, and the return home. Neil flew. Buzz watched the landing radar, calling out numbers that represented split-second judgment and flying skills. During the descent, Buzz selected landing data from the computer display and called out the critical data to Neil. The reports normally consisted of altitude, rate of descent, and forward velocity, although in many cases only the single most critical element was reported. 700 feet, down at 21 feet per second, chanted Buzz. In mission control, Krantz's team had gone to a negative reporting mode, as seconds became even more precious. Normal reporting stops and controllers report only no-go conditions. With the exception of Carlton's fuel remaining calls, the, the room is silent, expectant, listening intently to the crew calls. 700 feet down, descending at 21 feet per second. 600 feet down at 19. 540 feet down at 30. Armstrong enters program 66, which gives him control of the lunar module's attitude. 700 feet, 21 down, 33 degrees. 100 feet down at 19. 540 feet down at 30 and at 15. Carlton called out in hushed tones, Attitude hold. Krantz acknowledged ATT hold, then silence. The crew was searching for a landing site. Charlie Duke, in more hushed tones, stated, I think we'd better be quiet from here on, flight. Krantz acknowledged the only call-outs from now on will be fuel. Mission control voice loops become silent, the atmosphere electric as controllers hung on each of the crew's words and waited for Carlton's call. Mission control watched displays that the crew couldn't see and listened for sounds yet to be uttered. If anyone so much as clears his throat, 
twenty other voices shush him. Reflexively, Krantz reached out and gripped the handle on the TV monitor with his left hand and continued to keep up with his notation in the log with his right hand. Again, Bill Tyndall stirred in his chair as he leaned forward to look at the displays. Krantz broke through the tension to run a quick status check. Fido, are you happy? Go flight. Guidance, how about you? Are you happy? Go flight. The tempo picked up. The crew callouts of altitude and descent rate increased in frequency. Krantz looked at his displays. The descent rate was almost zero. They were hovering now, looking for a place to land. Krantz checked the clock in his log. It was more than 11 minutes since descent was started. In every training run, they would have landed it by now. It was going to be close, very close, closer than they ever trained for. Aldrin continued the call-outs. They're 400 feet down at 9. Cape forward. Despite the confidence of the astronauts' voices, there was still a problem. No place to land. Rocks, more boulders, surface debris strewn everywhere. Neil fired Eagle's left bank of maneuvering thrusters. The larger rockets scooted the lunar module across rubble and lunar debris while Neil looked for a smooth, flat area. Buzz did not know about the crater or the boulders, and he heard nothing from Armstrong, who was too busy flying to get out more than a few clipped words every now and then. And Buzz was too busy to look out the window. His eyes went back and forth between the gauges and the computer readouts. His hands went to the computer keyboard to extract the critical information, and his voice, heard on hot mic by Armstrong and the listening world, was a steady stream of data. 350 feet down at 4. 336.5 down. You're pegged on horizontal velocity. His voice was almost electronic. 350 feet down at 4. 33.5 down. Armstrong flew onward, sharing control of Eagle with the computer. As he cleared the big crater, he was careful to pitch the Eagle back again to avoid building up too much speed. Below, he could see a string of boulders. He banked slightly to the left to get away from them. The response was sluggish and familiar. The lunar module was a much better flying machine than he had expected. Easier than simulation. The little toggle switch to control their rate of descent, the one he had been skeptical of back on Earth, was working well. Now Armstrong pushed it several times to slow their fall. The moon rushed up at him, new terrain advancing quickly over the horizon. He heard Aldrin say, 300 feet down, three and a half, 47 forward. 300 feet down, three and a half, 47 forward. Neil's heart pounded. Still, there was no clear place. The clock seemed to race. He had to buy time to search for a spot. Armstrong slowed Eagle's descent rate. How's the fuel? Armstrong asked. Eight percent, Aldrin answered. Neil knew this was less than they had had in any of the simulations. Now, at last, Armstrong saw what looked like a patch of smooth ground just ahead. Okay, Armstrong said. It looks like a good area here. Aldrin stole a moment to glance out. 
On the bright ground 250 feet below was a dark silhouette, clearly recognizable as a lunar module, bristling with antenna and landing gear and ringed with a halo of sunlight. That's the shadow up there. The velocity light came on, indicating they were not getting good radar data. Then Buzz went back to the gauges, his voice more insistent as he fed Armstrong data. 220 feet, 13 forward, 11 forward, coming down nicely. Now Armstrong saw that the place he had selected was no good. I'm going right over the crater, he said his words lost in Aldrin's numbers. I gotta get farther over here. Again, he nudged the hand controller forward, leveling the craft, using the last bit of forward speed to clear the crater. And just beyond it, he saw where he was going to land. It was a smooth, level place, about 200 feet square, bounded on one side by a few large craters and on the other side by a line of boulders. He knew they were getting very low on fuel. As if to emphasize this, the descent quantity light now glowed on the instrument panel. Altitude velocity light, three and a half down, 220 feet, 13 forward, 11 forward, coming down nicely, 200 feet, four and a half down, five and a half down, 160 feet, six and a half down, five and a half down, nine forward. Low level, exclaimed Carlton on the flight director's loop. Propellant in the tank was now below the point where it could be measured. It was like driving your car on empty. Controllers turned their mental clock on. There was less than 120 seconds to land or abort. Carlton's backroom controller, Bob Nance, using a paper chart recorder, was mentally integrating throttle usage by the crew and giving Carlton his best guesstimate of the hover time remaining before the fuel ran out. During training, Nance got pretty good at this and could hit the empty point within plus or minus 10 seconds. Krantz never dreamed they would be still flying this close to empty. 100 feet, three and a half down, nine forward. As the crew passed 75 feet, another call came from Carlton. 60 seconds. At 75 feet of altitude with a descent rate of two and a half feet per second, they would have about 30 seconds of fuel remaining at touchdown, assuming Nance's integration was good. It could be a lot closer. Charlie Duke repeated Carlton's call on the uplink. 60 seconds. Hey, 75 feet. That's looking good. Down a half. Six forward. 60 seconds. Lights on. There was 60 seconds of fuel left, and 20 seconds of that had to be saved for an abort, and only 75 feet separated the eagle from the moon, but Armstrong had found his landing place. It was crucial to bring eagle straight down, with no horizontal motion, otherwise there would be the risk that the touchdown might break off a landing leg. Armstrong trained his vision on a place just beyond the landing point, which he would use as reference to judge Eagle's height and motion all the way to touchdown. Now he noticed that everything was wrapped in a transparent haze. The blast of the rocket was disturbing the dust of the moon. As Eagle descended, the haze became a sheet of rushing streaks that flew away from him in all directions, obscuring the surface. Down two and a half. 
forward. Forward. At 40 feet down, two and a half. Picking up some dust. Carlton's voice again penetrated. Stand by for 30 seconds. 30 seconds. Duke echoed the time on the uplink. The whole mission was now down to the last 30 seconds, assuming mission control guessed right on the fuel. 30 feet, two and a half down. Straight shadow. Four forward. Four forward, drift into the right a little. Down a half. 30 seconds. Forward, just. Carlton called. 15 set, then stopped. There was a lengthy pause in all communications. Then Aldrin said, contact light. Below three of Eagle's footpads hang 1.5 meter probes that illuminate a lamp in the cabin when at least one of them touches the surface. Contact light. Okay, engine stop. APA at a descent. Boat control, both auto, descent engine command override off. Engine arm off. 413 is in. It took Krantz a second to realize the crew was going through the engine shutdown checklist, just as they did in training. It really sunk in when Carlton, in a droll, almost bored voice, said, Flight, we've had shutdown. Duke responded, We copy you down, Eagle. We copy you down, Eagle. Spectators in the viewing room were drumming their feet on the floor standing and cheering. Krantz's team remained rooted in their chairs, but the sound seeped into the room. Krantz experienced a chill unlike any in his life. He was totally unprepared for the flood of emotion. This was the one thing they had never trained for, the instant of the actual landing. Krantz was choked up, speechless, and he had to get going with the stay no stay. There was not one second to spare, but he just couldn't speak. While the world waited, Neil Armstrong sent goosebumps around the globe with his words, Houston, Tranquility Base here, the Eagle has landed. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here, the Eagle has landed. Roger, Tranquility, we copy you on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again, thanks a lot. That was a highly annotated and interrupted description of the moon landing. Now I want to play for you what many of us heard that day live. Here are the final minutes of the landing as called by Walter Cronkite and Wally Sherrall. 1202. 1202. Good radar data. Altitude now 33,500 feet. Hal wasn't too far off. <laughs> I suspect that uh, Hal may be uh, just about right by the time uh, uh, Doug Ward relays that to us, so he's probably a few seconds behind. Yeah. Roger, we got you. We're going at alarm. Roger, 330. 6 plus 2-5, throttle down. 6 plus 2-5, throttle down. Roger, copy. 6 plus 2-5. We're still go, altitude 27,000 feet. Same alarm, and it appears to come up when we have a 1668 up. Roger, copy. What's this alarm, Wally? It's a uh, go uh, case. That Eagle, Houston, we'll monitor your Delta A. Beautifully. Function uh, that's coming up on the computer. Delta A is looking good now. Roger, Delta A is looking good to us. The verb noun combination, no problem, as I see. Delta A on time. 
Right. <laughs> they say it's better than the simulator. That's consoling. Crowds around this country and all over the world are watching this, listening to these communications. Altitude now 21,000 feet, still looking very good. This is the International Arrivals Building, Kennedy Airport, with a big display board there. Velocity down now to 1,200 feet per second. You're looking great, Disneyland in California. Okay, I'm still on flu, uh, so we may tend to lose as we gradually stick over. Let me try auto again now, see what happens. Roger. He's talking about the high gain antenna. Okay, it looks like it's home. Roger, we oh, got good. good data. Makes the job easier. They're down to just 14 miles to go in four and a half minutes. Seven minutes, 30 seconds into the burn. Four and a half minutes left in this era. Altitude 16,300 feet. Great the way the communication is working. Descent to fuel to monitor over. Altitude. Altitude 13,005. Velocity 100 feet per second. Made it uh, switch over time, please. Just... Roger, stand by. You're looking great at eight minutes. Uh, correction on that velocity. Now reading 760 feet per second. It's the P64. Good. 760 feet per second on the way down. <laughs> That's pretty slow for space flying. It is. It's as slow as man has ever flown in space. It sure is. Fido says we're go. Altitude 9,200 feet. 830, you're looking great. They're just about Descent rate 129 feet per high second. gate. We copy. That's a 7,600-foot level. 1.4 miles high when they get down to a speed of 98 miles an hour and they're just a little under five miles from the landing site. At that point, they can pitch forward, get a really good view Eagle, of the landing you're looking site. great. Coming up nine minutes. At that high We're gate. We're now in the approach phase. Everything looking good. Is there inside now the high 5, gate? 5,200 feet. 5,200 feet. Less than a mile from the moon's surface. Annual attitude control is good. Roger, copy. Altitude 4200. You're a go for landing, over. Oh, oh great go. I don't understand. Go for landing. 
their uh, egg done uh, horizontal velocity. Standard speed down three and a half, 47 forward. Put up. On one a minute, one and a half down. 70. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I want to say thanks for listening to episode 221 of the Space Rocket History Podcast, entitled Apollo 11, Lunar Landing Part 3. I hope you enjoyed this episode. 
The last three have taken a long time to prepare, but I enjoyed it, and it was a pleasure to bring it to you. I want to give a big shout-out to all my long-time listeners. Thanks for staying subscribed, and extend a warm welcome to my new listeners. I am glad you're here. Make sure you sign up for the email list and connect with me on Twitter and Facebook. You can do all that, as well as download every episode of the podcast, even the ones that no longer fit on the RSS feed. You can do all of that on the homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Today, we salute the second most popular level of donation, Vostok. There are 56 Vostok donors so far this year. Vostok donors give $10 or more during the calendar year, and I want to thank Vostok donors for their continued support. I have uh, several afterthoughts, of course, on this episode. I definitely want to convey a sense of fulfillment (laughs) as I completed this episode. Finally, at long last, the United States and mankind in general have landed on the moon. A feat that has been duplicated but has not been exceeded for 48 years. In my opinion, the greatest technological and engineering achievement in human history was the landing on the moon. The space race was won here. Half of President Kennedy's goal has been achieved. The other half will be returning them safely to the Earth. If you've been listening for very long, I'm sure you remember the Apollo 1 fire that was covered way back in episode 133. Grissom, White, and Chaffee were killed in that fire. I believe that was NASA's darkest hour. That was the deepest valley. But their deaths were not meaningless. The Apollo capsule was greatly improved by identifying those shortcomings of the Apollo 1 capsule and making changes to the later versions. NASA and we are on the mountain peak right now. This is the high point. Grissom, White, and Chaffee put us there in many ways with the help of the NASA managers, workers, the contractors, the government, the people that paid the taxes, and even the competition with the Soviet Union had a hand in achieving this magnificent goal. NASA and their contractors, can you believe it? They did this. Do you have any doubt if we had told these people back in 1969 to take us to Mars and we funded them, I believe we would be on Mars right now. I don't doubt it. After this landing, Mars seemed to be the next step. Von Braun believed we could do it in 10 years. Now, I doubt that we could have done it that quickly. But I do believe we could have done it in 48 years. What about the pressure cooker of mission control? Krantz was in his mid-30s and his team was averaging in the mid-20s. Can you believe what they accomplished? Neil, Buzz, and Mike put their lives on the line. What a great team to accomplish the first landing. Did you know about all the problems they had landing? the bad communications, a bad procedure, 
computer overflow alarms, boulders on the landing site, nearly running out of fuel. Yet they overcame. Is there anyone who you would rather have flying that eagle than Neil Armstrong? He had the most time in that flying bedstead death trap called the Lunar Landing Training Vehicle. You know, I think I would have had enough of that thing after having to eject out of it. But that wasn't Neil. In fact, Buzz considered Neil to be the best pilot he had ever seen. And I guess that includes himself. You don't really hear everything that went on just listening to the media coverage. I hope you noticed that. It was a struggle and a great triumph. I want to give an SRH salute to everyone involved in Apollo 11 and special commendation to Neil Armstrong. But hey, the mission's not over yet. We still have to take a walk fly off the lunar surface, dock with Columbia, return to Earth, splash down in the ocean, and make sure there are no nasty moon germs to wipe out civilization. (laughs) Okay, I posted some pictures and the audio for this episode on spacerockethistory.com. Hope you check that out. Well, we have hit the dog days of summer when funding usually goes down a bit. But I was pleased to see that we did receive two new donations to support the podcast over the past week. Wayne and Naomi Holmes sent in another donation this year, moving them up to the Salyut Skylab level with rocket, moon, and satellite emojis. David R. donated at the Apollo level and earned his rocket emoji. So that brings the total patrons to 133, 17 short of the goal of 150 before the end of the year, and our overall donors have reached 230 with a goal of reaching 300 by the end of the year. For those of you who are enjoying the content provided here and have not donated yet in 2017, please consider supporting the podcast if you're financially able. Keep in mind Space Rocket History is entirely listener-funded, I depend upon your financial support to keep the podcast going. The dreaded dog days of summer are here. You don't have to donate much. You can make a one-time $10 donation at the Vostok level or sign up with Patreon for a small monthly donation. Sort of like a voluntary subscription. Just go to the homepage and click on one of the links on the top right side of the page and begin your support of the podcast. For those of you who have already donated in 2017, I certainly appreciate it. I have some of these Orion desktop model kits to give out. I think this is the last one. The the model is of an Orion spacecraft service module and solar arrays. It's made out of cardstock. To assemble, you just push out the pre-cut parts and fold them together. To select a winner, I gave each donor a number. I put the range in Google's random number generator and got the number 109. 109 is James Bramley. James, if you would email me, mike at spacerockethistory.com, and tell me your address, I will mail this out to you. 
Well, we have run out of the Orions after this week, so next week I will have something different to give out that hopefully you will enjoy. I want to encourage everyone to share the podcast. Feel free to link the homepage or a particular episode on all social media, and thanks to those who have already done so. And we have reached the end of content for this episode. You are welcome to stay and listen to my off-topic thoughts if you want. Thanks for sticking around, folks. Hope you enjoyed that episode. I really did. It was a great episode. I've been waiting so long for that one. That was such an important episode for me to do. Next week, we will continue where we left off. This stay-no-stay decision has to be made. And, of course, then the walk and everything that comes after that. Now, a word to new listeners. The question comes up occasionally, how do I select what I cover in each episode of the podcast? This is how it works. The podcast is a timeline. In 2013, I started with episode one, and that was in ancient times. And now, four and a half years later, I have progressed to the year 1969. For each year, I try to cover the most significant events that occurred. So, it is a sequence of events. After I cover 1969, I will move on to 1970, etc. The question also comes up, where can I find those early episodes that are no longer fitting in the RSS feed? The answer is, all episodes are available at the homepage. But, confidentially, between you and me, I'm working on a secret project to improve that situation. (laughs) Some of you have already discovered what I'm talking about. (laughs) Good job. (laughs) The project is not ready to go yet, so I can say no more about it. Okay, let's move on from that. In personal news, Mrs. SRH continues to recover well and is going through her physical therapy. We are beginning to plan another short camper trip. I I really need to use up my $3 a night camping sites, you know. (laughs) That's a pretty good deal, three bucks a night. Now, we're thinking about heading up to Ohio and Michigan, and then a little bit of Canada. If all goes well, we will head out in the early to mid-September range. For those in the U.S., I hope you enjoyed that eclipse. I did, and it was spectacular. We used an arc welding mask that fit the requirements for the eclipse, that was dark enough for the eclipse. The sun, through that welding mask, actually looked green. Through that mask, I had some trouble just finding the sun. It was so dark. But once I did, it looked green. (laughs) We also tried out the Eclipse projection boxes. We made a bunch of those and tried those out. You know, where you make the little hole and you lined up with the sun and it projects on the other side of the box. Well, we tried that. That did not seem to work as well. Then Mrs. SRH brought out a colander that she uses as a pasta strainer. It has a bunch of little circles on it, you know. And we held that in front of the sun and shined it through to the sidewalk. And that did work out. There were like a hundred little circles there 
on the sidewalk, and you could see where the moon was crossing in front of the sun. So that, that worked pretty good. But overall, the welding helmet worked the best, and we most mostly just passed that around for everyone to get a chance to see. We all also listened to the NASA live stream, and they were covering the eclipse as it passed on its arc all the way across the United States. Had excellent coverage. That was an excellent program. We just listened to it from the live stream on the phone. It was really nice. My location here in the foothills got a 97% blockage, according to the zip code I put in the internet. That's what it was. Anyway, we had a small amount of light at the maximum eclipse. It reminded me of the lighting of sitting in the stands at a high school football game or maybe a twilight level of lighting. It got darker, but there was enough light to walk around without a flashlight. But it did fool the bugs. The cicadas came out, and the groundhog living beneath my storage building came out as well to see what was going on. But all things considered, it was a wonderful experience. I'm glad we had the opportunity to see this eclipse. Okay, that's about all I have for this week. I'll try to get episode 222 up by next Thursday. So long for now.